This podcast is brought to you by, 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 by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vet. This GemLab meetup in collaboration with Civic Tech Innovation Network aims to reflect upon the work that is being done to decolonize African narratives, but to also look forward to resetting Africa onto a new path of solidifying its stories and futures. The sessions will unpack ways in which journalism, media and civic tech communities can contribute to reshaping African narratives. Today's conversation is the second of a two-part discussion on reclaiming African narratives through storytelling. Today, project coordinator of GemLab, Tepo Chabalala, chats to some of the doers, individuals who are already working in the space to decolonize African narratives. The guests share their learnings on bringing others into the market, interrogating their models and innovations. My name is Tepo Chabalala and I head up the GemLab program here at Vets Journalism. And joining me today, is Dr. Nkiru Baloni, founder of the Africa Soft Power Project. We have Nanjala Nyambola, writer, advocate, and traveler. And we also have Daniel Orubo, editor-in-chief at Zigoko. Today's topic, reclaiming African narratives through storytelling, making it happen. It's the second of the two-part conversations we're having. And we had the first one a couple of weeks ago, unpacking what needs to be considered in reclaiming African narratives through storytelling. And the two key takeaways from that session were, one, that we need to make sure that we are putting out our African stories across the continent. And secondly, that we, as in Africans in Africa and those in the diaspora, have to be consuming our own content. And that brings us to today's conversation. And we've called in some of the doers to share their experiences and learnings in actually what is working on these issues. We are looking for their practical insights uh, the observations as African narrative builders. And during this conversation, we will interrogate their models and also innovations. So firstly, I want to begin with Nkiru. How is the Africa Soft Power Project playing its part in relation to the topic of discussion for today? I feel like there's no contest that the world is largely driven by storytelling and narratives. If you think about it, our perception of nations of regions, of cultures, are rooted in the stories we are told. Like every power play, every movement, ideology is defined by stories. Think about it again, narratives are the bedrock of perception, and perception drives action. So like narrow it down to my life and people around me thinking about growing up. I grew up in Nigeria, and many of us grew up around American music and movies. America continues to, you know, shine out this beacon of hope to many of us. We all had the American dream growing up. And we're just as proud of people like Trevor Noah as we are of Bernard Boy, who've gone to America and sort of like, you know, shone us bright. I don't know if we can claim Tesla, you know, Elon being like South African born is again that whole like, oh, this African doing great. But on a serious note, think about it. The news about Africa is markedly different from this little drops of, you know, African, you know, amazingness that we see. The global media, and I think even our media, likes to amplify the challenges that face the continent. If we look at the TV, everything in Africa is always about hunger, hunger. You know, we have flies, kids with flies, women carrying 50 things on their back, all of that. And so it's really like that we as a people and we as individuals and we as Africans have to challenge the negative stereotypes and build a better picture. I think I personally believe it's about harnessing our individual soft power as individuals and as collectives. I thought it would be interesting to talk a little bit about my doctoral thesis 
which was on film as a catalyst for socioeconomic development, which is actually where I came across the idea of soft power, which was a term that was coined by a Harvard professor, um, Joseph Nye, describing it as the ability to attract and persuade arising from the attractiveness, a nation's attractiveness, its culture, political ideals, and policies. I've taken the liberty of shifting the onus a little bit from nations and to us as individuals, and by extension, the private sector. I think you can imagine why. I mean, generally, leadership on the continent has as impactful as it could have been or it can be. So I think as a matter of urgency that we as individual Africans, we as a private sector, need to portray Africa differently. We need to communicate Africa's achievements. We need to inspire, particularly the next generation of young Africans, not only the ones on the continent, but also around the world. And we have, you know, the internet as a resource to use and do that. And the only way we can do that is actually to optimize our own stories, whether as, you know, individuals doing amazing things or as collectives doing amazing things. I think it's really, really important. And that's actually what led to the Africa Soul Power Project, um, us starting it, because we're really passionate about using you know, our software to transform the trajectory of the continent, and also in particular to include African voices in global discourse. I think generally when you look at conversations, even the conversations about Africa that concerns Africans, there's usually no Africans in the room. So the project, Africa so far, is particularly designed to amplify expressions of African success while simultaneously trying to deactivate traditional stereotypes. And I think it's important for us that we're, we're narrowing down on creative and cultural industries because we think that they're the fastest vehicle to change perception about the continent. It's also a very quick vehicle to be able to build bridges between Africa and the global Black community and, of course, the wider world. So in summary, we all have different things in life that we're good at and, we're, you know, and we all want to do different things. But within these spaces, our lives and our work can inspire and help to transform the continent. I don't know, you know how, how far we can get as individuals, but I do know that if we actually all sort of like aspired to do our best, and we all sort of like delivered at the highest standards, we can create new stories and narratives of the continent, regardless of you know, what our different governments are doing. That's it in short. The name Africa Soft Power Project is very deliberate. Tell me how important, how important soft power is in changing narratives and why that name? Soft power, I didn't come up with it. It was a, a Harvard professor who came up with it. When I was doing my research on films, it was like, it was a new idea for me, a new idea in terms of seeing it crystallized. But you know, something you've been thinking about, like, oh, this is in the back of my mind, we could actually do different. So that's why we picked the name soft power, because it's compared to hard power, compared to government, you know, it's thinking about military power and all of that stuff. But soft power, the ability to sort of change people's minds by persuading them, by attracting them to what you're doing, as opposed to coercing them. So that's why the soft power thing, that's why we came up with the name Africa soft power. We don't think that Africa has done enough to harness its soft power, whether from the creative sector, whether in terms of leadership, whether in terms of private sector. We think that Africa can do better. Africans and the continent in general can actually do better. Daniel, I want to come to you. Talk us through some of the work that you are doing at Zikoko and also the importance of storytelling as a tool for creating empathy for marginalized groups specifically looking at the LGBTQ community. 
So, um, so what we try to do is we get Africans from Nigerians from all around the world. We interview Africans and just say, okay, tell us your story regarding this. We have different flagship series, like we have Naira Life, where we talk to people and ask them to engage with us on how they spend money and how money affects their lives. We have Sex Life, where we talk to Nigerians of different gender identities and sexual orientations, talking about what is it like being queer? What is it like being non-binary? What is it like being trans in Nigeria, in Africa? We have Love Life, where we navigate relationships. So for us, it's allowing people to see themselves. I think that is so important. Like representation is, I'm so passionate about representation, especially in film and in media, because I think it saves lives. Since we, since I started Zikoko, a lot of people, since I started working at Zikoko, and since we started Sex Life, a lot of people have DM'd me to say, um, thank you, I feel seen. I'm a lot of queer people, I feel seen, I feel represented. I didn't know that there were so many queer people outside just living. When we did our first story interviewing a trans person, a lot of people said they didn't know trans people lived in Nigeria, which is such a crazy concept to me. Of course, there are trans people in Nigeria, but a lot of people didn't realize that. And I think that's the power of storytelling. That's the importance of storytelling. It builds empathy, allows people to see that, to see beyond their realities. And that is one thing that I think Zugoko is very passionate about and very serious about. For us, um, reclaiming our narratives is about allowing people to speak and not just allowing people that we agree with or allowing people that we relate to, but allowing every single person have their voice heard. I think that's very important. And I think that's what Zikoko is fundamentally about. I think the key thing about Zikoko is that your target market is the youth. Tell me one other thing that, that has made Zikoko popular across Nigeria and what makes it such a unique platform. People really engage with our content because it's different and because it's it's just honest and and so it's it's written in a very simple way. We are not we interview people, just ask them questions. We're not trying to impose our thoughts on them. So we're just allowing people to speak. And not a lot of publications do that. So I think that's why people are really gravitated to Zikoko. Langella, can you take us through the Kiswahili language projects that you are doing and how that and your other work speaks to the objective of reclaiming our African narratives through storytelling? So the Kiswahili language project flows organically from work that I've been doing in digital rights and digital advocacy because a lot of the technology that we use is built in English-speaking communities, primarily in the United States, but also in other parts of the English-speaking world. Many of us are experiencing technology in translation, and especially from a rights perspective, it can be very difficult when a lot of the things that we're trying to advocate for, the words just don't exist in the language. So there are so many concepts that it's not just the one-to-one translation of the word, but you also want to have people understand what is the import of the word, what is the context of the word, and what is it that makes this particular word meaningful. Having worked in digital rights um, advocacy and digital rights research for many years, I just came to see perceive this as a limitation and a challenge in the advocacy work that we're doing. We had gotten to a point where it's a handful of people who are working in English, speaking in English, engaging with each other in English, but we're not really translating it. We're not really making the rights real for the people that we're claiming to advocate for. And so the challenge for me was then how can we create a context in which we are working together with the communities that we're claiming to speak on behalf of, especially um, during the digital ID campaign in Kenya in 2019. And there's a lot that's been published about this, some of which by me. We realized that we needed to not just talk about like IDs, because when you say ID, people know what the, we call it Kichambulisho. They know what the ID card is. And so they were like, we don't understand what's the problem. And we have IDs, so they're just putting it on computers. And we're like, no, we have to talk about surveillance and we have to talk about data protection and we have to talk about, and none of these words exist in Kiswahili. And so 
having experienced that, having tried to be at the forefront of that advocacy campaign is really the immediate impetus for the Kisraeli Language Project. And very briefly, what we're doing is we are creating these words. We've worked with some of the leading scholars of Kiswahili in Kenya and Tanzania. We're working in Kiswahili because Kiswahili is the most widely spoken African language in the world. It is also what, the only African language that is an official language of the African Union. Uh, there are plans to have Swahili taught in Namibia. There are plans to have it taught in South Africa. So it's a language that is approaching that level where there's the formal uh, sort of structures that you are able to engage with, but then there's also the spoken language. So there are structures that we can engage with. There are institutes that are promoting the Israeli language. And so we brought those scholars together. We came up with, we spent a lot of time deliberating and talking and backend stuff, came up with the words. And then um, we're also doing, um, in parallel with that, a language prize. And a language prize is supposed to encourage people to use the words. It's supposed to take, make, make them popular, you know, and, and test them out and see if this is something that can become normalized. And then we're also doing a writing initiative, which is to get people in the human rights and digital rights sector to write about digital rights in Kiswahili. And so we're working with local newspapers and publications um, to try and get opinion pieces and analysis about different aspects of technology published. And so, you know, we, uh, myself, I grew up in multiple linguistic contexts. And because of that, appreciate that all of us are slightly different in the different languages that we speak. We, we project different aspects of our personalities in the languages that we speak. And so this project is a recognition that if we don't find a way of allowing people to fully inhabit the space of technology, tell our stories and to advocate for ourselves in the languages that we speak to really represent ourselves and inhabit the technology space. Otherwise, we end up in the situation where African societies are spoken about and spoken to, but never spoken with. We're never in dialogue with the people who are building technology. And that's, that's basically the theory of change behind. We hope that by the end of this project, there's an 18-month project cycle we have sown enough seeds that other people will feel empowered to be part of the digital rights and tech conversation. And that we hope we're building a movement, an organic movement um, for social change in the space. And I really, ideally, because, like, as I said, Kiswahili has formal structures, they're institutes. But the hope is that if we do this well, because Kiswahili is a Bantu language and it's a Bantu language family is the most widely spoken language family in Africa, that people who speak other African languages will, will have a template for doing that in their own languages. And I'm keen to find out, you keep saying if you do it well, what would stop mm. you from doing well? What's the hindrance? What are the blocks that would block you from doing this project very well? So far, every door that we've knocked on has opened. So <laughs> that if is really more just out of habit, but the response has been tremendous. I mean, the Language Prize, I reached out to the Mabasi Cornell team who are the largest Kiswahili language prize is the Mabati Cornell Prize, so they have the largest pot. We, I reached out to them and I said, look, this is what we want to do, and expecting there to be like weeks and weeks of deliberation. And it was a three-hour email exchange, like, yes, absolutely, let's do it. Even all of the institutes, because I think there's a recognition that the time is now to do this. I think the only hindrance really is that it, it is a lot of work. You know, we are working and, you know, we're still doing other stuff. I mean, myself and my project assistant, we're still doing other stuff. We are funded by a grant. Um, I was a recipient of the um, Stanford Digital Civil Society grant, but, you know, it's a timed uh, project. So the funding is an issue. A lot of this, the money now is already like me putting money in. 
And we're building a game. I should mention, we're also building a game. We're turning the flashcards into a game. And so it's, it's things like that that would be the hindrance. But what I really see happening that's been so exciting for me is that people are really excited about this and the doors have been open and, and have been very generous with their time and with their resources. And so the only if is we have to get people to use the, we have to get people to use the word. We have to get people to actually embrace what we're doing. And, and that's the only contingency that we have right now. I want to bring in Daniel and Kiru. Daniel, I want to find out from Google's perspective, are you guys only publishing in English or other Niger- original Nigerian languages, if I can put it that way? The problem right now for us is it is a small team. We're still growing. But it's a question of, I remember our boss came into the office one day and said, and asked if, like, does the gate man read Zikoko? And so we went, we asked him, like, you've been working here. He was like, oh, no, he doesn't, like, because he doesn't really connect with it that way. And like, so it became a, co- a conversation of, yeah, we really should think about expanding in Pigeon, in Yoruba, in, I think it's one of the reasons BBC is so accessible here in Nigeria, because it's BBC House or BBC Ebo. Um, But it is a bigger company. But it's definitely a conversation we're going to have. We also were even thinking about, like, translating it in French for Francophone countries, because when we look at, like, the people that read Zikoko, it's not just Nigerians. A lot of Ghanaians, Kenyans, like people around Africa read Zikoko. And, and that is even when the Zikoko con- content is specifically Nigerian. So we can't imagine how people would engage with it if we actually like translated it into different languages. So it's definitely a conversation that we're having and it's something that we would love to do. Yeah. I'll come back to you, Nigel. I just want to quickly go to Nkiru. Nkiru, what are we doing at the Soft Power Project to be inclusive, to reach those people who do not necessarily speak or understand English? Because we all publish in English. Mostly. Well, I have to be honest, I sort of like Daniel, we're a pretty small team. We're just starting and we sort of feel like the world speaks English. And so we are also aware that we, we do not aspire to reach every single person because it's an impossibility for us. And what we aspire to do is to sort of amplify the voices, the African voice, African people's voices that should be on a platform when there is um, global conversations being had. So we're not actually trying to reach every single person. What we're trying to do is inspire, like inspire Africans. And so like, if there's an African leader somewhere that you know, can inspire, we want that person, man or woman, girl or boy, to be on a global platform. You know how the world is celebrating, um, um, what's her name, um, Greta, the, the climate change, young woman. There's a lot of you know, amazing young people like her, but they're you know, Africans. Nobody's sort of like bigging them up. We want to big them up. We want the world. We want African kids to see their own version of themselves. When we saw Amanda Gomez on screen, you know, reciting that poem, we were like, whoa, you know, everybody was, all the girls were like, oh my God. When we saw Ngozio Konjoiwela with the scarf on as WCO, we were like, oh my God, we can get there. So I think there's room for everybody in terms of what people are trying to do. But our core mission is actually to bring Africans to the global conversation. Angela, you want to come in there? Yeah, I was going to say, I think that it's very easy to underestimate the reach that language can have. So a couple of months ago, uh, in November, I guest edited a special edition of The Continent. And I don't know how many of you have heard of The Continent. It's a, it's a magazine, on Af- it's an African newspaper that's optimized for social media. So for uh, Signal and WhatsApp. So you sign up for free and it lands in your inbox every Saturday. And we had done, I had done an opinion piece in Swahili and they had commissioned a bunch of opinion pieces in Shona, in Debele, and and we had sort of been testing the idea of language for a number of months. And then we just kind of said, 
we're going to do a special edition of the continent, which is about the U.S. election. And we're going to do it in as many African languages as we possibly can. And we even stayed away from some of the usual suspects. So we didn't have anything in French. We had 27 writers working in 15 different languages. And it was one of the most popular editions of the magazine. We had Cameroonian pigeon, Nigerian pigeon, Swahili, Portuguese, Somali, Sudanese Arabic, North Sudanese Arabic, South Sudanese Arabic, like we had. And what we did, what really made the difference was instead of thinking about it as a process of translation, we thought about it as a platform for letting people to speak on their own terms. And so we didn't provide any translation for any of the articles. We wanted the people who speak those languages to feel like they were being invited as themselves and to speak as themselves. And there was definitely that anxiety of, oh my gosh, is anyone going to read this? Is anybody going to understand what we're trying to do? And it turned out to be completely unfounded because there was enough of the English content that English speakers felt like they could engage with the paper, but there was also everybody would stumble across something that was, you know, in Lingala, in Kirundi, and be like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm reading this in an international newspaper. I can't believe, in fact, just today, I still get comments about this paper. Just today, someone was telling me, I've never seen political analysis done in Somali in an international newspaper. So I'm saying that to say that I think we can underestimate the power that our languages have. And I, I recognize, you know, that there is this broader contextual limitation, but I look at what Ngugi has done, for example, with his latest book, which is he wrote it in Gikuyu and then he translated it into English. And without caring that the people who read English, the Kikuyu version existed first. We flip that narrative. If we flip that in ourselves, our intention in ourselves, actually you'd be so surprised at how ready people in this continent are to have their ideas exist in those in their in their languages. How do we bring in innovators and those interested in working to reclaim African narratives into the market? I can say something a little bit and I, I, I'll sort of draw. Um, there's a question in the chat from a who says talking about African voices. What do you think about the work of CNN with projects like African voices and shaping the African narrative? And I'm going to use that to um, Talk to your point, Seppo, about innovators. Last year, during the core, the peak of COVID-19, and it was still around, and we had NSAS in Nigeria, um, which was the movement against police brutality. And at that time, we had Aisha Sase, uh, I don't know, who was a former CNN journalist, cover it. And she sort of reached out to us at um, African Women on Board, uh, as well as Bella Niger, which is like a, this you know, huge life, um, lifestyle um, platform in Nigeria that sort of amplifies the continent. Aisha Sassay was live discussing NSAS. We had all of the, you know, the key players from the Femco to Files, who was one of the leaders in terms of, you know, we had literally a plethora of people from the Nigerian Bar Association to literally everyone was on Aisha Sassay's platform. But, you know, it was sort of, for me personally, very sad to see that two, three weeks later, when CNN finally came to talk about it, Nigerians and even Africans were saying, oh, thank God for CNN. Oh, thank you for covering it, you know? And we're like, we were here. We were covering Aisha, your own person, your own person, your own sister was covering it way before CNN started covering it. 
but you didn't say thank you, Aisha, for doing this. You, you know, until CNN came, you didn't feel like anything had been done. And that's the whole thing around including making sure we have African voices leading African stories because we are, we are here, you know, like CNN will come for a second, but the African, the African is African and is living here and is understanding it and is seeing it. And we can sort of like communicate to the world, but we're also sympathetic to who we are. And so we tell the stories differently, but we as Africans also have to actually appreciate Africans who are doing a great job as opposed to always thinking that the, you know, we will be saved by the CNNs and the BBCs and all of that stuff. Who, of course, they're also doing a good job, but I also think that CNN, BBC all have to support more African voices to tell their own story. If that makes so, hopefully that sort of like connects the, um, the dots for you. Daniel, do you want to come in there? I agree with what Nkuru said, whether it is like, there's the habit of assuming that something that isn't done here is just like better, just based on the fact that it wasn't done here. And there's also, there's also the issue of people being seen. There are a lot of people doing amazing work, but can people see it? And that's where funding comes in. So you have great content being written, you have great content being created, but it's just in your tiny corner of the world because you don't have money to push it and you don't have money to see it, to see, um, see it in front of people. Um, and that's what's very important about like what um, Inkiru said about these companies that do have hands. Hiring the people that are on the ground to actually tell these stories or funding people who are telling these stories and like allowing them to be seen. So I think like it's just a part of money. People need money to, to be seen. People need money to push the work that they're doing. So, so, that they, so these stories are being told. So like I think innovators will come when they see that there is room. Like when they see other people, like people here are actually telling important stories and people are doing work that matters. That means there is room for me to come. There is room for me to grow this, this industry. So I, I definitely think Putting, everybody putting their money where their mouth is, is a very big step and allowing people to be seen and allowing people who are doing the work to be heard. Yeah. You are saying that funding is not really an obstacle to doing more in getting African narratives out. Do you guys concur with Manjala? From a slightly different perspective, funding is not an issue. It may become an issue, but personally, from a personal philosophy, I feel no pain, no gain. And so Nanjala, even though she said funding is not an issue for her project, she obviously hasn't told you, I mean, she has told you, but she hasn't told you of the hard work she did for 12 years to get to this point where it's no longer an issue. But there was 12 years of toil and pain to get to the point. So I think funding is always going to be some sort of issue, but it shouldn't be an issue to starting something. Because I think if you do great work, the money will follow. If so, that, and that's a thing for Africans, young Africans, I always say, just start, you know, start the thing, keep moving if you do great work like i think it was will smith that said you can't outwork me you may be smarter than me you may be whatever it is but you cannot outwork me and literally i don't know anyone who can outwork me so that's what we're doing we're like obviously my poor team we're all sort of like working on killing ourselves but literally we're going with or without funding we want to tell the story we want to amplify african voices we know we have the you know we have the network we have access we do a good job, the money will come. That's how we're operating. Daniel? Yes, I, yeah, I agree to an extent, but like for, like for Zikoko, for example, we want the best teams. We want to hire the best writers. And as much as people who work at Zikoko love Zikoko, I mean, we still got to eat. Like <laughs> we're going to love to write the best stories and interview people, but like we need to pay salaries. And for example, when we want to, you know, start translating, we're going to need to pay translators. Nobody's going to come and work at Zikoko just because they like us or they think we're doing important work. 
So as a product, it is we need we still need to pay these people. And yes, right now at Zikoko, a lot of our content has like right now we we are being read the most than we've ever been read since Zikoko has been created. We have a bigger audience, our page views are really high, but that's not the cap for us. We want to go higher, and we know that with the way things are set up. Like for example, um, we publish our stories on Facebook and Twitter. And the way Facebook is now, if you don't promote on Facebook, people are not going to see what you posted because there is a war preventing publishers because Mark wants you to put, use money to push it. So we do need money to push it because we do want more people to see it. There are so many people that have said, oh, reading Sex Life, I realized that my homophobia was stupid. But like some people are never going to see it because we don't have the money to push it in front of more people. And that is for me, that's where funding is. Funding is very important for growth. So we want, there are lots of people that said, immediately I found Jigoko once. I always came back. But there are people that have never seen it. Like in our heads, we think Zikoko is very popular because people are always tweeting about it. But like we know there are so many people that have never seen it. And there are so many people that even if they see it, they won't understand it because of the language it's written in. So there are so many barriers we need to pass. And money, sadly, no matter how good the work is, money is going to help us push those barriers. So yeah, it's very hard. And a lot of people don't want to fund the media because everybody's very focused on tech right now because it feels like we can be very one-track minded in the way we think, um, the way we think about the next big industry. So oh yeah, tech is the next thing. So everybody's focused on tech and tech companies are, give, are being given billions, but like just <laughs> throw some millions our way. Let's use it to grow too. But that's, that's not what's happening. So we feel like we're doing our best to work and show that yes, people care about this. This is how the media impacts people. This is how people are invested in it. So if you, if you, if you fund us, we'll be able to do more important work. Yeah. And I like what Inkiru said that when Nanjola started, she had 12 years of grafting. And I want to touch on that. I'm starting out. Where do I start? Um, who do I go to to get funding opportunities or guidance on to starting something? Where do, where do we, what's the starting point once I've started doing the work? How do I monetize my platform or what, the work that I'm doing? The History Language Project is slightly different in that we are not trying to monetize in the traditional sense of the word. I'm not making any money off from this. I have a project assistant that I pay. And we pay people for their time. So like this experts who gave us their time. And when people teach, you know, the, the workshops that we do, we do pay them for their time. And again, that is the product of this being grant funded. And it's a discrete project that is running for a very discrete amount of time. So unlike what Ankiru and, and Daniel are working on, we are not trying to grow as an institution. We're trying to grow as a, as a way of thinking about things, as an idea. So the funding is really about seeding the ideas and hoping that we create an enabling environment that the ideas will sort of run themselves. Probably the only exception to the whole project is the game. It's supposed to pay for itself so that when you buy a pack, you are not just buying that pack, but you're also buying a pack that we're giving to uh, high school students. And so it's slightly different in that way. But in terms of how do I start, where do I start? I will say, I think this is jumping off something that Nukiru said or Daniel said. You have to have a clear vision of what it is that you want to do and why. Because there are going to be very many moments in that 12-year cycle or five-year cycle where things, it's not going to make sense to anybody except you. Why are you still doing this? Why don't you go and do something else? Why don't you go, if you're from an African family, go and be a doctor, a lawyer, or an engineer? Why are you doing this, taking these risks? And so you have to have to be so clear in what your work is. And that doesn't mean that when you say the work, we're not talking about your job. We're not talking about your, you know, nine to five or whatever, but 
what is my contribution to this space that I'm interested in? What can I bring to the table? And to be so clear in that, that even if you say, I'm going to take six months off to go and do this so I can earn some money and bring it back to do this, that you will, you know that you're coming back because you're so clear in your contribution. I think money um, can be a distraction in the sense that we're told that we have to be profitable within one year, otherwise it's not an initiative issue. But I always tell people in the tech space, Uber has never made a profit. Uber has never made a profit in its entire existence. Jumia has never made a profit in its entire existence. There's so many of these big tech companies that have never made money because someone out there, a VC or an angel investor thinks it will make money 20 years down the line. So I wanna be in on that. And that's a two part problem. The other part is that we need people to give money to African initiatives. We need VCs and angel investors to invest in African initiatives. But from the African innovators part of it, look at the bottom line. Don't be obsessed with the bottom line because money can be a distraction in that way. Look at the bottom line. Don't be obsessed by the bottom line. Love that. I've got a question here from um, Geshi, who's curious about some of the big challenges um, that each of you um, have had as we advocate for this idea that Africans can do it. What's getting in our way? Um, where do we need intervention? Money is really important and we are funded, but we're funded by my private sector activity. Like, oh, my company's funding Africa for power. If not, we wouldn't be able to get anywhere. We have to pay for you know, websites. We have to pay for marketing. And to um, Daniel's point, to actually be able to create a movement of anything, you actually have to sell it. So there's a lot of marketing. So what we do is we do um, what I call um, Snoop Doggy marketing. So we partner with people. So we had a lot of collaboration. If you remember Snoop Doggy, he was always, you know, partnering, collab. One, he's on every music video you think of back in the day, remember? And so we're like, okay, we collaborate with people. We sort of like use their um, space to sort of like amplify our messaging. So really, really important. But I think a core thing that is, to me, very annoying is actually that Africans do not fund Africans. And I think you see it, you know, if you think about African millionaires and all of that stuff, it's a lot harder to get money out of them than if you went to, you know, some white bloke in, in Virginia or wherever. And I think that's something that has to change. And then look at it. And if you look deep, at most of the Africa initiatives, Africa-focused initiatives, they actually are not being run by Africans. They're, you know, they're like usually behind the scene is usually a, um, a non-African who's seen this gap or the opportunity, and then they start this thing. And generally, Africans will give money to that. But when you go as an African to say, oh, hey, can we have a meeting? I'd like to talk to you about, you know, soft power or whatever it is, that doesn't happen. It will take me hanging out with Oprah to get you know, my people down this way to take me seriously or take us seriously. So that's one of the things I think we need to change as Africans. We actually need to support uh, um, local African talent. We need to actually support the African dream. We need to actually create the African dream. What is the African dream? It, should, it shouldn't be about the American dream for us. It should be about the African dream. What is it? Whatever language you speak, what is the African dream? For me, it's a case of, I would say, like, yeah, like, um, like Nanjala said, like what we're doing is very different. We're a media company, so we do need to be profitable. So when we create content, we're thinking of, yeah, is this sellable or not? But one of the roadblocks we've experienced is that a lot of people are not brave enough to want to push a certain kind of content. Like, like for example, we would have like, okay, Sex Life, we would like to, Sex Life is one of our best performing series in Zikoko history. 
but people, no company wants to put their name behind it to promote it because it interviews queer people. It doesn't interview just straight people. And for us, that is like, mm, we don't want our company to be associated with this. We don't want, for like Love Life, for example, we don't want our company to be like, connected with yeah, interviewing a queer couple. And for us, that, is, that has been a very big hindrance because like, I, I don't believe that um, while I'm, I'm, I'm editor-in-chief of the Google, we'll ever say, okay, let's stop interviewing diverse people because we want to sell our content. That's never going to happen. So what needs to happen is that companies need to be braver. They need to take a stand. During NSAS, that was like, for me, the clearest, the clearest indication of the fact that Nigerian companies like to stand on the line. They like to toe the line. So they'll be like, um, when I go to tweet NSAS, we'll just rather not tweet anything. So, so, it's, so it's not that we're saying anything or we're not doing, like, it's very, I just think we need just the general bigger companies to be braver and like, just like, put your money where your mouth is like, stand for something. You're creating value for people and the people they are creating value for are diverse. You're not just creating value. You're a bank. You're not just creating value for straight people. You're queer people and you're a bank. Queer people work for you. Like non-binary people. Like just <laughs> take a stand. And for me, that's, that has been the biggest issue. And that has been the most annoying thing in this journey. And Tapo, and I want to start a platform like Zigoko, a series like Sex Life. Daniel, how do I begin? What are the building blocks? Um, okay, for us, the way it started, we were like, what's something that Nigerians... <laughs> um, are kind of obsessed with but don't really talk about Nigerians were very repressed so we do like Pornhub would, would release like um, a report that says Nigerians watch the largest amount of porn and like but Nigerians don't go out and talk about sex so we decided to create sex life to have those conversations but one of the things we needed to consider was that this thing cannot have the person's name attached to it because they're not going to be honest if that's the fact so the first thing we had to agree on is okay this has to be anonymous and immediately we did that, a lot more people like came forward and were ready to share their stories. And I think what people don't realize is that people want to talk. In Nigeria, therapy isn't popular. So there are a lot of people that are repressed and have a lot of things to say, and they don't have the opportunity to say it. And for a lot of people, Zikoko has kind of been that avenue to talk about the things that are bothering them. So wherever you are, I feel like that's, that translates to everywhere. Everybody wants to share their story. Everybody wants to feel seen. Everyone wants to feel heard. So honestly, if you wanted to start something like Sex Life in, say, Kenya or Ghana, all you need to do is like literally put out a call and say, I'd love to talk to queer people in Ghana about the experience. Don't worry, your identity is going to be fully protected and you can just tell me anything. You would be shocked, about, shocked at the amount of people who would reach out because people do want to share, people want to talk. And I don't think it would be as hard as you think it would be. It would be pretty easy to get people. All, all you need is the trust. Like the Zikoko, there is that level of trust because... We've been doing this for years and no one has ever come to say Zikoko released my identity or someone found out it was me. And because of that trust, people are very open to sharing their stories. Kiru, I want to come to you as a researcher. Soft Power Project, I see it. What are the gaps? Where are the gaps? How do I contribute and be part of this transformation conversation? I think maybe I would say from a philosophical point of view, also being able to answer where the gaps are because I'd rather talk about the things we can do. So imagine if out of a hundred of us, 80 of us were doing our very best in our own spheres. If we all sort of like aspire to inspire, I think that's where, how we can actually move the needle. I, I mean, if we're honest, most of our governments haven't done, you know, done us well, but as individuals and as the private sector and as non-governmental organizations, there's a lot we could do. And there's a lot we could do with even having little money. It's just really about thinking critical thinking, what, I mean, Nigel actually talked about it and like map what you want to do and, you know, create a strategy around it and 
you know, it will come. Because I think of all the things I've done across my life, no one's actually ever thought it was a good idea. But when your instinct says to you, this is a good idea, this is something we should be doing and have a strategy and have a clear strategy and map it from A to Z. This is the beginning. This is the middle. This is the end. The middle is usually chaos. You will find that if it's mapped and you have a strategy, it will actually come through. It feels like it wouldn't, but it, it does come through. So I think from a general perspective, I don't know if I've answered your question around challenges because I don't want to start talking about there's a whole bunch of them. I will talk about the things we can do differently and do better to sort of like, you know, raise the standards for everybody else. Angela, I want to start something. Zulu and Guni languages are the biggest languages here in Southern Africa. Where do I start building a similar project? Where do I begin? What are the building blocks? The basics. Talk to people who are smarter than you who know the language better than you, listen to what they have to say, seek out expertise, seek out experts, bring experts on board, work with people who understand why these things matter. Take your big dream and break it down into the smallest constituent parts. And for me, that meant physically mapping it out on an Excel spreadsheet. It's mapped out for the next 18 months. When I started, everything was coded red. And then when it's in progress, I turn them orange. And then when it's finishing, it's turning green. And the immense pride that comes from watching those squares start to turn green as you're moving towards your putting goal. in the so work, that is also reaching part out of to people who might serve your vision, who might work with your vision, and pulling in that direction, asking for help, and just internally shifting that idea that our languages can't, and starting with the idea that our languages can, and what is my place in making that possibility a reality. I think will go a long way. If you are interested in writing in languages other than, you know, colonizer languages, we have the, the folks, I know the folks at the continent are always happy to receive submissions through this iteration process, have come up with a strategy for editing that makes sure that the stuff that we're receiving is of the same quality as the stuff that we receive in English. So all of which is to say, make a plan, work the plan, and you'll be fine. Ladies and gentlemen, we've run out of time. Nanjala, Daniel, Kiru, thank you so much for all your insights. I've learned a lot today personally, and I hope you um, have too uh, as audience members. Thank you so much, Tepo, and all the panelists for this insightful conversation. Visit gemlab.africa or find us on all social media platforms at gemlab.africa to continue or share your ideas on how we can take this conversation forward. You'll find more details on our next conversation on our website, gemlab.africa. This podcast was brought to you by Civic Tech Innovation Network in partnership with Voice of Vets.